This is an ABC podcast. Hello and good night. Kia ora na and good morning. I'm Aggie Thubal and this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. We'd like to acknowledge that Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Hopefully you had a great weekend and today on the show we'll have delays in funding from the US now opened up. More of a territory for China's ever-growing influence into the Pacific. Not engaging in this legislation really speaks poorly to the credibility of the United States and the rest of the Pacific. There are calls for Donga's current government to be dissolved. It is a constitutional crisis in the making because the Prime Minister has clearly rejected His Majesty's opinion. The option that's, that's left to him under the Constitution is to dissolve Parliament. And a viral video of child abuse in Fiji highlights a disturbing growth of violence against children. More on those stories shortly, but I'm Aggie Dubal and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, Micronesian leaders have warned that delays in funding from the United States are putting them at risk of exploitation by other countries. It comes amid growing financial pressures in Palau, the Marshall Islands and the Federated States of Micronesia, which rely on ongoing budgetary support from the US. One expert says the shortfall has forced the countries to rely on the threat of Chinese influence on the region to force the US to act. Mackenzie Smith reports. Under the Compacts of Free Association, the Marshall Islands, Federated States of Micronesia and Palau give the US military access to their waters in exchange for funds and the right for their citizens to live and work in the US. The Compacts were last year approved for renewal for another 20 years, but the economic benefits which would provide the countries with more than 1.6 billion US dollars in funding over that period have not yet been actioned by the Senate. Kenneth Goffigan Cooper, an associate professor of political science at the University of Guam, says the funding is critical. It's about being able to afford to eat, right? It's about being able to have decent government services. It's about stopping the disastrous effects of climate change, right? In their letter dated February 6, the presidents of Palau, the Marshall Islands and the Federated States of Micronesia appealed to the US Congress after the funding for the compacts was not included in a revised budget. The agreements that this legislation would approve were to take effect last fall. Although we understand the delay in the legislation's approval, it has generated uncertainty among our peoples. As much as they identify with and appreciate the United States, which formerly governed our islands, this has resulted in undesirable opportunities for economic exploitation by competitive political actors active in the Pacific. The presidents did not name the political actors, but the comments follow increasing scrutiny on Chinese influence in the region. China inked a security deal with Solomon Islands in 2022, and last month, Nauru scrapped its diplomatic ties with Taiwan in favour of China. Kenneth Goffigan Cooper says the language chosen by the Micronesian leaders reflects a political climate in which priority is given to strategic competition. It seems like more and more the, the only language that the United States understands when it comes to the Pacific is China. And so you have able to speak to the United States government 
in the language that actually affects them. He says the rhetoric of the US when it comes to its relationships in the Pacific is not being matched by action. This is something that has received bipartisan support. And so I don't think it necessarily means that the US government as a whole is not invested in these agreements, but it surely looks bad. Asked about the delays on Friday, the US National Security Council Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for South Asia, Rear Admiral Eileen Laubacher, told the ABC she couldn't provide any assurances. We do have bumps and hurdles along the way, um, but we take our obligations very seriously and will work very hard to work across our government and administration to follow through on the obligations that we do have. And Kubit says there are reputational risks for the US if it does not end the delay in funding. Not engaging in this legislation really speaks poorly to the credibility of the United States and the rest of the Pacific. And so the dysfunctional Congress, as we see it now, is having severe um, repercussions to the way that Pacific Islanders and the Pacific Islands outside of Micronesia may view United States commitment to the region. The United States have made all of these different promises, but if they are not able to secure and pass the economic, these renewed economic provisions of the compacts, this is the true litmus test of credibility. Cooper says the delays may also reflect priority being given to U.S. funding to Israel and Ukraine's militaries. And that's Mackenzie Smith reporting. And for more on this story, joining us live is Balao's president, Saranga Whips Jr., who signed the letter appealing to the U.S. Congress for funding. So with that, I say good morning, Mr. President. Good morning. Yeah, thank you for joining us this morning. As we get straight into it, I mean, how damaging is this delay in funding going to be for your Micronesian countries? Well, uh, we signed the agreement uh, in May of last year. Uh, we were optimistic uh, that, uh, based on the agreement, October 1st, uh, it would go into effect. Uh, and it's important for Palau because there's, you know, we're suffering from COVID. It's, we're still trying to recover. And we negotiated this agreement in with high hopes that it will be implemented in October and the funds would begin. So we are now halfway into this year. Uh, We're facing financial shortages. And uh, because of that, uh, it raises doubts here at home on when it's going to actually happen. And uh, and those doubts, of course, uh, have impacts on how uh, people perceive the relationship and... and, uh, how it should be uh, viewed if we can uh, depend on uh, this funding to be able to be flowing uh, in a timely manner. Uh, On our side, I mean, we have met uh, with uh, members of uh, U.S. Congress, both sides of the aisle. Uh, We've we've, uh, heard from from them and heard their strong bilateral support. Uh, I mean, uh, but... The problem uh, is that, uh, uh, you know, there's other issues in Washington, and we understand that. But we remain hopeful that it will get done. And uh, uh, this is uh, uh, sometimes how democracy works, and we just have to have faith in the system.
Mm. And the, the letter that you did actually sign, uh, Mr. President, references the potential for economic exploitation by competitive political actors who are active in the Pacific. Do you mind maybe saying a little bit more about this risk? Well, Palau has, uh, in the last uh, agreement that it had with uh, the United States Compact Agreement, which went into effect uh, in 2018, because what had happened was for eight years, uh, Congress had um, uh, stalled. Uh, they couldn't get it passed because of gridlock in Washington. And during that period, uh, China aggressively went from uh, zero tourists coming into Palau, almost, to almost 100,000 tourists uh, coming into Palau uh, annually. And that was almost uh, 70% of our uh, tourism market. And after uh, 20 of the 2016 elections and, and Palau uh, not switching to Taiwan, those numbers begin to just uh, drop dramatically. Uh, what we see now is after COVID, uh, tourism coming back, which is a welcome site. We need the tourists, but uh, we also don't want to be uh, subjected to economic coercion. The other thing that we saw a lot of was uh, investment from China. Uh, so there was a lot of foreign investment, still continues. We're very glad that this year that the number one foreign investor into Palau is, um, is Japan. Uh, that's the first time in like 10 years. And we, we, we want to encourage that. And that's why we're encouraging a device, diversified uh, tourism market. Uh, we've had flights, uh, uh, attempted to be started from, uh, Singapore, uh, well, there's a flights, two flights now from Australia uh, to Palau, one through uh, on Air Nauru that goes uh, via Nauru and, and Marshall Islands and Ponape to Palau. There's also a flight that goes from Brisbane to Port Moresby to Palau on Air New Guinea. Uh, this is part of how we build our resilience. And then this compact agreement is the other important key to building our economic uh, resilience uh, and to be able to... Uh, uh, not be uh, subjected to uh, uh, the influence of China. Uh, you know, the Chinese ambassador in Pohnpei basically told me, uh, the sky is the limit with China. What are you waiting for? Join the rest of the world and recognize us. And uh, that's just, you know, the constant bombardment we get. And of course, uh, now it's election years in, in Palau, so we can definitely see the influence uh, uh, starting again. Yeah, so do you believe that China will have more influence uh, in the region if this funding is not passed by Congress? Well, I think absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, it, it comes down to credibility and and uh, having faith in the system. And so uh, we still believe that we, uh, uh, we are friends with a free and democratic country and uh, believe in a free and Indo, uh, open Indo-Pacific and, and uh, have hope that the system is going to work. And, um, but, uh, of course, uh, further delays uh, create uh, uh, problems. Uh, and with those problems, uh, I believe they said uh, there was a total of about $6.5 billion that's been promised over the next 20 years. Uh, do you in any way think that this figure could be lessened due to the delay? Well, uh, that I think would even, that would be catastrophic. If anything, it should be increased because they've delayed. Uh, so, 
I, I should hope it wouldn't be decreased. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, If you're just tuning in, we're speaking with Balao's President Sarangal Whips Jr. uh, on an appeal recently made to the U.S. on delayed funds for the Pacific. Now, we spoke a little bit there about, you know, Nauru has actually made the switch recognizing China over Taiwan earlier this year. Could some Micronesian countries follow suit if they run out of funds? Like I I said, in Palau, we have a strong affinity in the United States. Um, uh, We... We we are we're, uh, a democratic uh, country. Uh, we have a very strong relationship with Taiwan. Uh, I don't see that happening under my administration because I've been very clear on where we stand. Um, but uh, those risks are always there. Uh, there could be a change in government uh, that can happen, and uh, but. Uh, uh, well, I've made very clear on our my uh, our stance at this time. Uh, just in the last election, when the when I was running, there was at least uh, two of the four candidates that uh, um, uh, were campaigning on the fact that uh, we should reevaluate our relationship with Taiwan um, and look at other economic opportunities. I think uh, the majority of the Palau people. Uh, a voice their opinion in the last election. And uh, I believe that's that's uh, where Palau stands. But of course, uh, when you're faced with economic challenges that you, you, you run out of options, um, that you always run those risks. Now, of course, there is such a great uh, focus on the Pacific. But do you worry that the compacts have been left by the wayside amid wars, even in, uh, in Gaza, sorry, and in Ukraine? You know, uh, we, we, we believe that the challenges in Ukraine and Gaza and the Pacific are all equal. And uh, we hope that uh, the United States and Congress uh, don't let it uh, by the wayside and, and uh, continue to uh, move forward uh, in fulfilling the obligations under the agreement. Mr. President, and as you mentioned earlier, yes, this is an election year uh, in the United States. I'm wondering your thoughts, should the Republicans take power? If so, is that likely to cause further delays with the release of funds? Well, I hope not. I hope that uh, uh, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, that our relationship is solid and based on our mutual interest to defend the free and open Indo-Pacific. Uh, under the uh, last compact, it wasn't passed until Trump got into office. Uh, so, uh, you know, you could argue either side, but I think this is a an issue that both sides of the aisle uh, support. It's just that sometimes the system uh, uh, has to work through itself. And with the letter that was made, has there been any reaction to it, any response to the letter? Uh, there is efforts in the U.S. Senate uh, to put uh, it back in the supplemental uh, budget. And so we're hopeful that uh, we'll get that support to put it back in. What's the time frame that you're looking at for a response? Uh, it's going to be happening uh, on Monday is what we're hoping. that we'll see something, some action Monday or Tuesday.
And then moving forward from there, what would you like to see? Well, Palau uh, and the United States remain uh, strong partners. There's a lot of other activities going on in Palau, like upgrading our runways, uh, ports, seaports, uh, uh, of course, putting over the horizon radar, uh, continued exercises, continued ship visits. Uh, these are all activities that also provide economic resilience. But uh, what I also like to say is provide deterrence because uh, we believe in the philosophy that uh, uh, peace comes through uh, strength. And uh, we are partners and we need to continue to work together to uh, keep the uh, Pacific free and open. Mr. President, we'd like to thank you for your time this morning. Appreciate uh, you giving us a bit of an insight into this uh, letter of appeal that's been made. Thank you. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie Tupal, where we head to Tonga. A former political advisor believes its government... uh, Apologies, Parliament should be dissolved as a result of the current standoff between the King Dubol VI and the government. Lopeti Sentuli, advisor to former Prime Minister Akiris Pohiva, says the King has no confidence in the current Prime Minister, Siausi Sovaleni. And he says it's time for the Prime Minister to step down. This is the, the King's expression of his dissatisfaction with the, with the Prime Minister and and a particular minister, that is the Minister for Foreign Affairs. But the last time he was dissatisfied with uh, the uh, performance of a prime minister was in August 2017, when he actually dissolved parliament. Right? So this time around, without actually dissolving parliament, he's giving a hinting, he's hinting to the prime minister that he's not satisfied with the way things are going because even though he's saying that he is dissatisfied satisfied with the prime minister's performance uh, as the minister for whole for the uh, his majesty's armed forces it has implications for the other for the prime minister as a person because he's also the prime minister the Minister for Police, the Minister for Education, and also the Minister for Medak. So overall, you can't separate him as a person, as a Minister for Home Affairs, uh, I mean for His Majesty's Armed Forces, from being Prime Minister and Minister for uh, the other ministries. So it's actually a vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister. So I think he should dissolve Parliament altogether. Um, Lopetti, you, you mentioned with uh, this is playing out as a as, it's more as a human view. Um, in light of the prime minister's response, which surprised a lot of the the local Tongans, what 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 do you think um, the prime minister replied as he did? By him saying that he had confidence uh, in the minister for uh, foreign affairs and the Minister for Tourism, uh, and yet he did, not, he did not say anything about the King's expression of lack of confidence and consent with him in particular. So that's, that is concerning because uh, you can't really separate the two, uh, uh, the, himself as the Minister for Home Affairs from his, uh, uh, his performance as Prime Minister and 
also ministers of other portfolios. Do you think this is just the beginning of practicing a constitutional convention um, leading to a constitutional crisis um, with, with today's events? It is a constitutional crisis in the making because the prime minister has clearly rejected his majesty's uh, uh, opinion regarding his minister for, for, for foreign affairs. And uh, that in itself is it gives the, the prime minister, uh, give his majesty the chance to do something else uh, beyond what he's done already, uh, beyond the withdrawal of consent. So can the, the, the option that's, that's left to him under the constitution is to dissolve parliament. We have experienced uh, a more democratic government now since 2010, and I'm very aware that you were also present within uh, that government. Um, the, um, what what do you see, or, or how do you see us, uh, the country, Tonga, our government, with its principles of uh, having a democratic representative government, and then we have this... Uh, uh, influence from um, within the letter from His Majesty or the Privy Council? The only way I, I see things going forward is that uh, His Majesty either uh, leaves it as it is, in other words, accepts the Prime Minister's uh, uh, rejection of his uh, opinion about the Minister for uh, Foreign Affairs. By implication, the, the Prime Minister has accepted accepted the king's opinion about him, himself, as the minister for his majesty's armed forces, and simply leave it at that. That's one option. That is, let things be as they are at the moment. But, again, his, the, this is the first time that the king has done this, and very clearly uh, we need uh, to work out a... Uh, a process in which such differences in opinions between His Majesty on the one hand and the Prime Minister on the other uh, can resolve their differences. And that is something that needs to be done as soon as possible. And that's Lopeti Senduli, former political advisor to former Prime Minister Akadis Boheva, speaking to our ABC reporter in Thonga, Marion Gobul. Stay tuned because up next we've got your news wrap with producer Mackenzie Smith. Newsroom 40. Hosted by me, Sam Wax. And me, Tenerao Aruna. Each week we'll bring you Pacific Islander stories from on and off the rugby league and rugby union field. We have plenty of special guests, tales from the past, tackle the big topics of today and look forward to the next-gen Nisian footy stars. Nisian footy. Nisian footy. Monday afternoons at 4 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Yes, welcome back to Pacific Beat. It's Monday morning and we head around the region just to see what the latest is out there. And today it's brought to you by our producer, Mackenzie Smith. With that, I say good morning. How are you doing? Aggie. <laughs> thank you, thank you uh, for joining us this morning. Let's get straight into it because uh, we're here to PNG. We believe the opposition leader, Joseph Lelang, has uh, resigned, just days out of an expected vote of no confidence against the Prime Minister. What's prompted this? 
Yeah, so all of this comes as, um, as you say, a, a vote of no confidence um, is looming. So just for, for context, um, this wasn't possible until the government had been um, uh, in office for 18 months um, uh, from August 2022. So just this week now, um, the grace period uh, will be over. Um, already, at least a, a dozen MPs have resigned um, from from government in the past week. Um, a lot of discontent there about the so-called Black Wednesday riots. Um, Lelang uh, has has resigned because he says that he's been left out of these discussions um, about a vote of no confidence and um, uh, an alternative leadership bid. Um, in part, he says it's because he's, he's not a party leader, although he was leader of the opposition. And he says that um, there have been discussions online which have had a, a personal toll uh, on his, uh, for his integrity. Um, so in, in, in his resignation letter, he, he says this was really the only option he had. Now he's back in the opposition backbenches um, while we wait to see uh, who will be the um, uh, the new leader and, and the likely uh, nominee uh, for Prime Minister. Um, Leilang does say he hopes um, uh, whoever, whoever takes his place will, will be the next um, Prime Minister um, and, and that he expects a, a no-confidence motion um, to be lodged this week. Mackenzie, how likely is that vote, though, to succeed? Well, it's, it's unclear at this point. Um, there, there are um, definitely many moving parts um, for the opposition. That right now they have 23 MPs um, on on their benches, but a, a successful vote would need the backing of of 60 members of parliament. Um, and the 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 latest resignations were um, as recently as Thursday, SCP um, Governor Alan Bird and Sam Basil Jr., who holds the Bulolo open seat. Um, there may be more, more, more to come as well. Um, uh, and so as for how likely that vote is to succeed, it will come down to securing um, further concessions from the um, government benches. Mm. Well, we'll keep our eyes and ears on that story for sure. Uh, we head to two Indonesian presidential candidates. They've actually clarified their positions on West Papua. What have they said? Yeah, so uh, Human Rights Watch asked um, all three presidential candidates how they would um, uh, address human rights violations in Indonesia, but in, including in, in West Papua. Uh, this is ahead of the, um, the, uh, the the vote on Wednesday in Indonesia. Um, and uh, two of the candidates, Anis Baswedan and Ganja Pranowo, uh, pr- provided their responses on, on West Papua, although it's worth noting that there was no response from um, uh, the leading candidate, Prabowo Subianto. Um, Still, Buzzwedan says uh, that he would focus on preventing violence in West Papua by investing in local food production, uh, health and community centres, and he wanted some sort of talent exchange 
um, between Papua and uh, Indonesia's, uh, Indonesia's national sectors. Pranowo uh, focused mostly on uh, economic solutions for Papua. He wanted tax incentives, um, more investment in infrastructure um, to resolve uh, socioeconomic disparities. Um, and, and he also wanted um, anti-corruption measures. Um, there, there have been calls uh, more broadly for a, for a re-switch on Papua policy. Um, President Joko Widodo has been in office for 10 years and um, the Institute for Policy Analysis said in a report last week that um, Papuan pro-independence fighters uh, are better armed and resourced than when Jokowi took office, um, so it it really um, uh, is up to the new candidate to to kind of respond to this re-switch. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's head to our final story here. I believe uh, there's a proposal to consider Pacific Islanders as domestic students in Australia. This sounds uh, encouraging. Yeah, this idea comes from uh, Samoa's High Commissioner to Australia, Hinori Petana, um, and uh, according to according to the Australian Association uh, Associated Press, she's told a, a public hearing that the uh, the costs of higher education in Australia are, are crippling for the Pacific. Um, there's obviously a lot of uh, desire to come and study in Australia, um, and, but she's hoping that um, that uh, leveling the the playing field, um, opening access to domestic fees would would encourage much more uptake um, from from the Pacific. Right now, uh, Pacific peoples make up less than one percent of um, Australia's annual intake of international students, and in, in, in total, there's there's nearly a million on average. Um, and there were also proposals at this hearing that um, there could be uh, a cap on how many Pacific peoples would be eligible uh, for that um, domestic uh, entry price, um, as well as calls including from uh, Samson Fare, the High Commissioner for Vanuatu, um, for, for a broader easing of visa restrictions um, for, for visitors from the Pacific. Yeah, it sounds very similar to, of course, uh, Prime Minister Celso Sovalini wanting the same thing with students from Donga to uh, gain access like that to study in New Zealand. So, yeah, we'll keep our eyes and ears on that story too. I appreciate uh, you bringing us our news wrap this morning, Mackenzie. No worries. No worries. Of course, that is producer Mackenzie uh, Smith with our news wrap this morning. Hi, I'm Sayuli Salamasinovan-Raiki, and I invite you to come with me to explore how our Pacific cultures have evolved with the changing times in a new show, Culture Compass. You'll meet people who are passionate about keeping traditions alive, passing them down to the next generation while adapting old ways to the present. Culture Compass, Tuesdays at 9am PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. 
Welcome back to Pacific Beat. Well, business leaders in the Solomon Islands capital, Honiara, have sounded off a warning over the dangerous state of the city's roads, which have deteriorated following heavy rains during the Christmas holidays. The Solomon Islands Chamber of Commerce and Industry says 98% of its member businesses have been impacted, while 75% are reporting a loss of revenue. Vice Chair of the Chamber, Naomi Kaluai told Carl Evans, enough is enough. The description of the roads in Honiara as deteriorating is supported by the observation of potholes, cracks, and uneven surfaces, especially current situation along the CTCBD, and going down further westward out. Such concerns have also been raised by the Solomon Islands Chamber on um, Commerce Industry in on behalf of the struggling businesses community in Honiara, as the current road um, situation continues to affect traffic coming in from the east to central and then the western end of the city. You mentioned the potholes and things like that. What's it like to drive right now? Is it just a, is it the potholes mainly that's causing sort of that bumper-to-bumper traffic? From the eastern end, we've just upgraded our roads from this end of the eastern part of the city. Um, this is like from the airport going into town. But um, yeah, like certain areas, especially within the CBD, there's potholes, big potholes that's holding up traffic. Is it that area in the CBD where the biggest concentration of businesses are? Is that the area that's probably being affected the most? All of the government machinery are situated in the CBD of Honiara, where most businesses commute to every day. So that's why it's, you know, affecting everyone. Yeah, wow. And obviously it's it's wet season at the moment in the Solomon Islands. Uh, we're just coming off the Christmas holidays. There would have been a lot of rain. And I guess even prior to that, it was the Pacific Games where, you know, there would have been a lot more traffic than usual. Has all that um, meant the roads have gotten uh, uh, sort of worse over the last few months? Worsening conditions are due to continuous rain over the um, rainy season, substantial downpour over the holiday period as well, and it's still continue. As we're speaking, it's still raining here, <laughs> still continue, and there's floods um, affecting bridges, especially the general sentiment from Solomon Islands Chamber of Commerce regarding the challenges faced due to the road conditions, including traffic jams and difficulty in travelling to work, also aligns with the notion that these adverse weather conditions will continue to worsen road conditions as well. Yeah. And this will disrupt yeah, business operations. Yeah, so you mentioned some pretty stark figures suggesting that about 98% of your member businesses have been impacted in some way. What what kinds of things are, are they experiencing? Is it sort of a loss of revenue, a staff, you know, constantly late for work and things like that? Yeah, so the impact on businesses are the prolonged travel times and increased transportation costs as well. Um, you know, some buses are running short cut routes, um, which increase transportation, and most especially delivery of goods and services due to the traffic congestion. Um, as you rightly mentioned, staff arriving late, resulting in missed deadlines, dissatisfied customers, and ultimately revenue loss. The extra resources um, additionally spent on vehicle maintenance and repairs as well due to the road damage 
further eating into business profits. You, you might not be qualified to answer, but uh, have you noticed just by yourself driving around town? Does it is it a bit of a health hazard too? Is it is it you know is it can it be dangerous at times when you're constantly trying to avoid potholes and there's always the threat of you know breaking down or busting a tire or something like that? Yes, the assertion that poor road conditions pose a safety concern is supported by the mention of potholes and even surfaces increasing the risk of accidents, a common consequence of neglected road maintenance. And that's Naomi Kalawai, Vice Chair of the Solomon Islands Chamber of Commerce, is speaking to our reporter, Carl Evans. Now to Fiji, where a disturbing video of a father beating his child has gone viral. It shows a man verbally abusing, then repeatedly striking the young girl with a piece of wood. This incident highlights the high rates of violence and child abuse in the country. A study of violence against children in Fiji reports that 41% of perpetrators of child abuse or violence are often a family member. So joining us live to talk more on this matter is Dr. Litia Measewabu, Associate Professor in Social Work and Communities at the Western Sydney University and is also a joint researcher on the scoping study report on violence against children in Fiji. With that I say Nisambulivinaka, Doctor, and welcome to the show. Nisambulivinaka. Yeah, thank you for joining us this morning. I have to ask, firstly, were you aware of this video? I mean, had you seen it? Uh, if so, with all the work that you do in the space, did it shock you or has this just become the norm? Yes, uh, I had become aware of it. Uh, one of my daughters showed it to me. Uh, and, uh, well, in a way, it's it's a bit you know shocking that it was just a matter of time uh, for it to appear on social media. I think it's uh, happening in our communities uh, all across the Pacific, but to be to have it captured on social media uh, is something that's uh, quite recent because of the um, the availability of social media throughout the world. Doctor, if not for that video, uh, no one probably would have known anything, right? I mean, does this highlight that there are many cases that often go undetected? Yes, uh, you know, as I've said before, it's it, it was just a matter of time before uh, any of those pictures become available. As we know in the Pacific and uh, especially in Fiji, through the study that we've done, uh, we found that um, uh, through a UNICEF study in 2008 and also in our study, that um, a lot of people said that it was okay to to hit their child through um, by as a form of discipline or educating them, um, you know, to act right or to behave in a certain way. So that is a common thing that uh, that happens. But um, whether it is um, the difference between it being abuse and uh, it just being uh, a form of discipline, that's another question that we all have to ask ourselves. Mm. And as yeah. someone who was quite vocal, Doctor, about this whole situation was Minister of Women and Children, uh, mm. Lin- Linda Tabuya, who gave her voice to the incident and mimics what you say. This is, She said, this is not discipline, this is abuse. And uh, as Pacific people, I know often in our island families, punishment is a form of discipline. But clearly, this has to be abuse. Or how can we, or are we, why are we not able to differentiate the two? Yeah, well, I mean, the issue goes deeper than that. I think uh, we have to work together as the church, as the Vanua or the community, 
to actually realize that what we're doing is abuse. Um, so one of the, the recommendations that we had as part of this study was about raising awareness. And also in this study, <clears throat> excuse me, we found that uh, there needs to be a lot of male mentoring that needs to happen. Uh, a lot of the the cases that we found was, you know, there was a lack of uh, was step parent or um, the lack of positive male um, mentors in their lives. And that's why those kind of things happened. So uh, it, it is about uh, a whole change within the community of how we view discipline. And again, it can, cannot just be, um, you know, the, just the family unit. It has to be the church, the vanua, or the, the communities, the villages. They all have to come together to put things in place that will introduce or that will support positive parenting. Doctor, there's quite a few people that spoke about even those who stood by to watch uh, can often mm. be considered just as bad as the abusers. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, uh, and and I think in our society there's that authority figure as the father of the household. Uh, a lot of the women would also see that as an authority figure. So um, in our culture, there there is that uh, that male figure that needs to be respected. That you are only women and children are only um, their voices are only heard when they are spoken to. And so that uh, mindset still exists in a lot of our communities. And, you know, children are now being exposed to uh, social media. They're being exposed to teaching in classrooms and universities where child rights, women's rights comes into play. But there needs to be um, an effort by the Vanua and the churches to come together in our communities to really understand what that will look like uh, in the Fiji context or in the Pacific context. Yes, there's the child rights and the women's rights from the Western view. But what does that look like uh, in terms of our communities in the Pacific and in Fiji? Mm. Again, shocking video. We saw what we saw. But so what are maybe the common forms of abuse or violence that's actually being reported in Fiji? Yes, so uh, some of the the highest number in the cases in the research that we did um, was uh, related to child neglect. So this is child abandonment, uh, malnutrition, things like that. But again, um, let me just say the five common ones, and then I'll come back to child the the feature about child neglect. So there's child neglect, there's teenage pregnancy, um, there is the beyond control uh, and domestic uh, abuse related to domestic violence or violence within the homes. Um, back to child neglect, that was seen as the highest one. But again, we have to understand uh, uh, what child neglect is defined as from the Western context and the Pacific context. So for us in the Pacific and in Fiji, you know, you can just tell the neighbor to look after your your child in the village context, but you can't do that when you've moved in the urban area uh, and other parts of the world. So um, a lot of times the mindset is still exists. So we found that that was quite high, uh, but we, um, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt to really see what they are, we are defining as child neglect. The other thing about teenage pregnancy is uh, in the cases that we saw uh, that 
you know, you if, if you are underage, uh, you, it was reported teenager and you're pregnant. It's reported as teenage pregnancy, whether or not you're married or consented to that. Um, that's a different story. So the cases that are coming through are just the reported cases. So again, um, when we were recommending things to the ministry, we were talking about differentiating uh, what those numbers are and what um, the underlying causes are. Doctor, in your research also, did you uh, find what the actual key drivers are of child abuse? Yes, so uh, we we came up with two things. Uh, one is the opportunity because of our extended families. In most of the homes that we um, looked at, that the cases were coming from, uh, of course, we know there's there's not just one nuclear family as in the Western context where there's a parent and two kids. So for us, it's uh, extended families living under one household. So it's those densely populated areas that had the highest density of um, child abuse. Um, also, you know, that's the, the opportunity to commit the, um, the crime, uh, because of the availability of children within the extended family, uh, house home setting. Uh, security, uh, we said that it's because of the, the knowledge that, uh, you know, you tell the child not to tell anybody. That's the authority figure speaking to the child not to say anything about the incident. And also uh, the the thing that we have culturally is that you can ask for forgiveness if something like this happens. So there's almost like a blanket of um, forgiveness that, that is understood that would be given if there's uh, a violence that happens within the home. But, you know, those those were the two things that we saw as the the key drivers to this. Uh, I might just add that uh, one of the other things that we saw um, when we interviewed the uh, the prosecutor's office at the time, and he was telling us that um, sometimes it would come up to right when they were about to, to do the case, uh, a letter would come or somebody from the village would come and say, look, um, we we don't want to press charges now because that person is the sole breadwinner of the family. So those those are just some examples, and it it goes back to putting the blame on the victim rather than uh, the perpetrator who's committed the crime. Mm, that's really unfortunate to hear. Yeah. Uh, if you've yeah. just tuned in, you're listening to myself, Aggie Dubo, on Pacific Beat. We're speaking to Dr. Litea Miyotsewabu on the alarming rates of child abuse in Fiji. And the conversation this morning is where to from here. I mean, if we look at the impacts on these children, what are they? Yes, I mean, the long-term impact uh, for these children uh, are just limitless. Eh? And, and uh, you know, they become children who can become abusers also. So you you're perpetra- you're perpetuating this whole cycle of uh violence that happens uh from generation to generation. Um some of the things that the ministry has put into place, um they've established a department of children. There is a mechanism that they've done. So previously there was just a unit for children, but now uh there's a whole department being set up um, uh, as part of the suggestions we had was that there are trained, specialized trained officers to 
uh, like a child protection officer, as you would in Australia and New Zealand, uh, that specialises uh, on uh, dealing with children. Um, so we've been working with the, the ministry and also with UNICEF to uh, try to come up with a, a training program that could educate um, uh, students or practitioners in becoming a child protection or child welfare officer. Because currently the, the, the officers that work, uh, in the ministry, they deal with the elderly, um, you know, pension, uh, poverty alleviation programs and also, um, child protection. So there's no one dedicated officer. So you can see that, you know, the attention is not really there for a child and what needs to be done. Dr. Loko, this is definitely a conversation that needs to be carried on, but I know that we've come to the end of our time this morning. Really do appreciate your insight, and hopefully we get to catch up again next time. Thank you very much for having me. No worries. That, of course, is Dr. Lidia Meastewabu, Associate Professor in Social Work and Communities at the Western Sydney University. And please know, for those in need of help in cases of domestic violence and child abuse, in Fiji, you can contact the National Domestic Violence Helpline 1560. In Papua New Guinea, there is the One Talk Counselum Help in Line. The number is 71508000. In Solomon Islands, the South Please 24-hour hotline is 132. In Vanuatu, the Women's Centre has a free landline, 161. While in Samoa, the Samoa Victim Support Group is on 800 7874. And finally in Tonga, the Domestic Violence Unit there is on 74016647. ABC Radio Australia is now available on 107 FM on the island of Giesel in Solomon Islands. If you live on Giesel or an island nearby, you can tune your radio to 107 FM to catch the latest Pacific news, sport, conversations, music and entertainment anytime right here on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome to our new listeners on 107 FM Giesel. ABC Radio Australia, yours in the Pacific. Join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. I'll be interviewing incredible guests and discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women. You don't call yourself a comedian. Why why is that? Yeah, I just wanted to show everyone that I'm just being myself. If I make you laugh, that's just me. I'm I'm just making you laugh from being me. Tune in to Sisters Let's Talk Thursday mornings at 9 a.m. PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. Well, that literally just brings us to the end of our show today. Time to take a look back at our main story today. Balao's President Sarangal Whips is urging the U.S. Congress to pass much-needed budget for Micronesian countries. This compact agreement is the other important key to building our economic uh, resilience uh, and to be able to uh, not be uh, subjected to uh, the influence of China. Chinese ambassador in Pohnpei basically told me, uh, the sky is the limit with China. What are you waiting for? And I'll be back at the same time tomorrow. That's 6 a.m. PNG time. You can also hear us again this afternoon at 5 p.m. PNG time. If you need to find any of our stories, head to abc.net.au forward slash Pacific. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia, though, because news is next. And coming up after that, it's Nisha Daily. I'm Aggie Dubal, and you've been tuning into Pacific Beat.